Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 44th edition of Databytes, Getting Things Done with Data and Government, our last before a summer break. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening here at the IFG and online. Can you believe it? 44 events over four years. Databytes has been going for almost as long as an Elton John farewell tour. We've had almost as many of them as well. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Databytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Databytes. Welcome. Now, SW1 was abuzz with the political wedding of the year this weekend, but tonight is all about our four fantastic speakers marrying data principle and data practice. Data matching made in heaven. Our speakers sprinkling insight like orange confetti. And where the email confirming your attendance is the only one that matters. Let's start with some housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. On social media, it's hashtag IFGDataBytes, and we are live tweeting from at IFGEvents, should any of you still be on Twitter. And as ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb44, capital S, capital DB. If you're here at the IFG, you can also raise your hand. Why does the IFG organise Databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government, show everyone what better data can achieve in practice, and put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does Databytes work? You're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a Databyte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 44th Databytes. You can watch the previous 43 on the IFG website. Well, it's been another quiet month in British politics. We've definitely exceeded our rate limit for political news. Now, tonight is the debut of the latest film in the MI series. That's Mission Impossible, not management information. But forget riding a motorbike and base jumping off a cliff. Trying to cover everything that's happened since our last Databytes is the real impossible mission. As befits the summer holidays, much of that news has revolved around departures and arrivals. So let's start with the arrivals. There's Threads, Meta's new social media app to where many Twitter users have fled. It shares its name with the acclaimed BBC Cold War drama set in the aftermath of a nuclear strike. So One Threads is all about survivors desperately trying to make do in a post-apocalyptic hellscape created by the hubris of powerful men. The other is an acclaimed BBC Cold War drama set in the aftermath of a nuclear strike. Now, Plyde Cymru have elected a new leader. I taught you how to pronounce his uh, name a couple of events ago, so repeat after me. Rhyn, Ap, Jorwerth. That's very good. His constituency is Anis, Morn. Excellent. And in that constituency is the village of no one? I thought somebody might do it this time. Never mind. Well, let's move on to departures and dismissals. Having already cursed his football team with relegation, the Prime Minister was at the second Ashes Test, which England lost, thanks in part to Johnny Bairstow's controversial exit. It's not the only intersection of cricket and politics this month. Rishi Sunak 
bailed on yet more Prime Minister's questions. He'll dip under 80% attendance later this week. Fans of open government were left stumped. When we said we wanted more transparency in government, we didn't mean invisible ink. And boundaries were in the news with revised parliamentary constituencies, with the new names the longest on record. Now, also this month, for a few moments, it looked like Vladimir Putin might be out as the Wagner group of mercenaries marched on Moscow. The episode is a reminder, as the IFG has long warned, of the challenges of outsourcing key government services. And it was the most controversial advance of Wagner since the seventh series of The X Factor. But this month did mark the end for a highly controversial, flamboyant populist politician who got into trouble for several parties, some of them at an Italian villa. Yes, former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi died at the age of 86. We used to point to Italy as an example of an unstable political system. They've had seven Prime Ministers since his last term ended in 2011. We've had a mere five. June also marked the end, for now, for Boris Johnson, who quit Parliament after a devastating report by the Privileges Committee. Had he still been an MP, his 90-day suspension would have been the second most severe since 1945, and well above the 10-day threshold required for a recall petition, which could prompt a by-election. We'll come back to by-elections shortly. But there was one final flourish for Boris, as the House of Lords Appointments Commission rejected just over half of the people he'd nominated for peerages. That compares to a usual rejection rate of around 10%. Also since the last day to bites, Zach Goldsmith resigned from government. That's now five resignations under Rishi Sunak and with a higher run rate than Boris Johnson. Two MPs had the whip withdrawn. That's 40 changes of allegiance this parliament. And 14 more MPs have said they will stand down at the next election, 69 in total. That's still behind the record 149 before 2010, though we have some time to go yet. And some MPs are leaving sooner than others. We definitely have by-elections coming in seats previously held by Boris Johnson, Nigel Adams and David Warburton. We may yet get them in seats held by Chris Pincher and the SNP's Margaret Ferrier, given recall petitions there. And we may also have a by-election in Nadine Dorry's mid-Bedfordshire seat. She announced she would resign shortly after Boris Johnson did, but has yet to do so. Indeed, it's 31 days since she said she was resigning. That's just 18 shy of Liz Truss's tenure as Prime Minister, longer than the recent Men's Football World Cup, longer than the online safety bill has spent in committee, three times as long as Ms Dorries lasted on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, nearly five times as long as listening to all of her audiobooks, and 21 times as long as her successor at DCMS, Michelle Donnellan, lasted as Education Secretary. Now, there are some healthy Tory majorities in those by-election seats, but the same was true of earlier by-elections this Parliament, which didn't stop some pretty dramatic losses. And if all of that news wasn't enough, Nicola Sturgeon was arrested and released without charge, Orkney considered escaping all of the madness and joining Norway, and in perhaps the most significant news of the month, the government advertised the position of Chief Data Officer yet again. It's been promising to hire one since at least 2017. Now, I hoped back in February 2021 that an appointment was imminent. But if I really wanted the government to take my plea seriously and listen to me, then rather than singing a sea shanty, perhaps I should have just identified as a cat. Turning to tonight, our first speaker joining us virtually is Jen Wolford from the Office for National Statistics on the future of population statistics. 
We'll be back in the building for our second speaker, Mikhail Peremba from the Department for Business and Trade with his perspective on data in the digital data and technology profession. Third up will be Lex Jones of the Registry Trust on using better data to make better decisions. And our final speaker this evening will be Stan Gilmore from the National Police Chiefs Council, updating us on what's happened since he spoke at Databytes 8 around cross-agency data collaboration in support of public health approaches to serious violence prevention. This is our last Databytes before a summer break. We'll be back on Wednesday, the 13th of September. This is an unusually unsponsored Databytes. Databytes will become even more unusual if we don't get some sponsors soon. We really do need them to keep the series going. So if you'd like to discuss partnering with us, having a speaker up here and your branding on stage and online, then please get in touch with my colleague, Pratesh. And if you work in the public sector and might be interested in speaking or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. That's more than enough from me. We're going to go virtual for our first speaker, and that's Jen. Thank you very much, and good evening, everybody. Um, thank you for inviting me to be part of your discussions this evening, although I think I've got a bit of a tough act to follow there. Um, I'm Jen. I'm Director of Population Statistics at the Office for National Statistics, and I'm here to talk to you about our vision for the future of population and migration statistics and the public consultation that we launched a couple of weeks ago. So I'd just like to start by saying um, population and migration statistics are critical to effective decision making. Billions of pounds of public funds are allocated on the basis of our population estimates every year. Migration statistics are central to shaping policy, understanding population change, and information on the characteristics of our population um, help understand disadvantage, inclusion, local uh, planning, and much more. Currently, that system is organised around a decennial census, which provides small area multivariate statistics of the population every 10 years and a population benchmark. And then in between censuses, we produce our population estimates by rolling forward, adding in births, taking out deaths and making an adjustment for migration. And we get information about the characteristics of the population from surveys. But the real challenges we've got there are it's difficult to estimate migration. And so what happens is you start to get a drift in your population estimates, particularly local area level. And survey estimates will only get you down to regional level. And COVID, the COVID outbreak really highlighted some of the challenges that that gives us as a country. So firstly, with um, vaccination rates, for example, it's really important that you have a good understanding of the population in an area to understand local population uh, vaccination rates. If your estimates aren't, um, aren't accurate, then your rates aren't accurate. And in COVID, where we were having very localised um, outbreaks of COVID as well, we wanted to really understand what the local populations looked like, what their occupations were, to understand what was driving those outbreaks. And we hadn't got that information. So what we want is um, a future population and migration statistics system that provides more frequent, timely and inclusive statistics about the population and its characteristics with administrative data at the core of this system. And we're, our proposed um, system has four key aspects to it. So firstly, a coherent suite of migration, population, household statistics from national to local level, providing insight into structural demographic change and the related challenges of population ageing and mortality. Statistics on the characteristics of the population built using administrative that we can provide um, multivariate statistics as well that 
um, reflect the diversity of populations at local levels. Statistics on housing, accommodation, living arrangements. And then one development that we're really excited about is having longitudinally linked data assets so that we can follow um, population life journeys over time and understand um, the stages that may have led to different outcomes for people. So, for example, with the information on armed forces veterans that we collected as part of the census, can we link future data sources and admin data to those populations to understand disadvantaged outcomes for, um, for armed forces veterans, as an example. So we've done lots of research that we've published over the last uh, month or so, showing how far we've managed to get towards that vision using administrative data. And one of the central um, developments there is our admin-based population estimates. And these are built from a number of different sources. So we take those aspects of population change that I mentioned before, births, deaths and migration. But we are also developing a population stock measure so that we combine our flows and stocks to get to our population estimates. And that population stock measure we call our statistical population data set. It's created from linking lots of different administrative data sources together, which then gives us a, um, a long list of people who've been interacting with the with administrative systems. And I should be very clear here, we're not creating a population register. This is a statistical, uh, a statistical asset that we're building. And we apply what we call signs of life business rules to that long list of linked administrative data, looking for evidence that we can be confident that someone in that list is present in the population and, or has been recently. And we're quite strict with those business rules because we want to turn this into a problem that we recognise. And we're very used to dealing with censuses which have a certain amount of undercount in them and then adjusting for that undercount. So we're creating a statistical population data set. Our ambition there is to make it as accurate as possible, but to have people missing rather than additional people in there. So we have the statistical population data set. We, have, um, we then have methods for adjusting that for that under coverage. And then we have a, a dynamic population model that brings together those flows and stocks measures, other indicators such as fertility, mortality data, um, and now casting techniques to, um, to make our population estimates more timely. And we've created those for um, 2021 and compared it to the census, it looks really good. The graph on the left there is showing that's quite stable in their uncertainty measures, so removing that drift. And also the, the graph on the right um, showing change between 21 and 22, which is showing the kinds of patterns that we would expect. So very excited about where we can get with our, um, with our population estimates. Other um, other research that we've published, we've created um, occupied addresses, estimates of occupied addresses by number of people living there and compared them to household statistics from the census, the, the chart on the left there looking at comparison for Newham, which, which stacks up well. We've also looked at creating population estimates by time of day and day of the week because our core population estimates are for populations present, so popu sorry, populations usually resident, people who live there, but the people using services can differ quite a lot by different times of the day. So um, we've, we've created some experimental innovative estimates on, on population by time of day. Um, in terms of characteristics of the population, we've produced estimates of ethnic group through linked administrative data. And on the left um, here is a chart showing ethnic group breakdown um, from admin data and from the census for Newham in London um, and again that's they're stacking up really well against each other it's really encouraging through linking that ethnic group information to our housing 
data. We've now um, we've produced multivariate statistics of admin of um, ethnicity by accommodation type, and we've produced for the first time small area estimates of income statistics as well. But we've still got a long way to go. This slide just quickly sets out um, the fact that in the top right, we've got some characteristics there that we're confident in and we've produced estimates for down, moving down towards the bottom left. There are a number of topics such as national identity, sexual orientation, where we need to do more work um, to really uh, demonstrate what we can achieve there. That was a bit of a whistle-stop tour of, um, of all of the work that we've published over the last month or so to demonstrate the concept of the population migration statistics we're moving towards. We launched the consultation at the end of June um, with two objectives, understand how our proposed system is meeting user needs and understanding future requirements to help us shape and prioritise our, our future research plans. So please do take a look at um, all of the research that we've published in our consultation document and give us our views, your views. And that, that's everything from me. I can't hear you, I'm really sorry. That's okay. Can you hear me now? Oh, I can, yes. Excellent. Yeah. I'm just, just telling people online that they can go to bit.ly slash slidodb44, capital S, capital DB, if they want to put questions to you. But I'm going to start with questions in the room. Who would like to ask the first question of Jen? We have a question down here. Uh, before we hear the first question, just to say, please do keep your questions short. You will be up against the clock. Do tell us who you are and where you're from, if you can. Uh, we are on the record um, and yes, do wait for the microphone, as you've done. Tim Hubbard, um, King's College London and Genomics England and Health Data Research UK. Um, so obviously the UK is doing a lot in terms of this sort of modeling, particularly the longitudinal building up, you know, histories of people. But who's your competitor worldwide in terms of different countries, particularly given that the European Union is now constructing data spaces starting with European health data space. So I don't know, who, who are, which other countries are you watching in terms of the way they handle these problems of calculating um, populations? So um, context is really important here in what we're trying to do in constructing populations. So um, many countries have got population registers, which we haven't got, and we're not looking to create a population register. We keep making sure we stress that. So without a population register or a unique identifying number, that linkage becomes um, much more complex, much more difficult, and, and the challenges around um, the accuracy of data linkage creep in. And so the countries that we work with most closely and we keep our eye on most closely are those with sort of similar statistical systems and, and um, administrative systems to us. So we work closely with Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, the United States, because we're all in quite similar, although slightly different situations. But those are the those are the countries we look to learn from most, the most similar situation to us. Great, thank you. Um, we've got a question at the back. Dominic Connor, Conservative Technology Forum. I was wondering how you balance privacy and related issues like this. As the granularity gets finer and finer, you start identifying, if not people, clumps of people. And I was just wondering how you establish a worthwhile balance with that. 
Thank you. And it's it's an interesting question. And um, we are we have confidentiality of, of protecting the data and protecting the information about individuals is really central to, to everything we do when we've got a proud history of over 200 years of conducting the census and keeping everyone's information um, private. We, um, as part of the census, have developed um, some very sophisticated uh, disclosure control rules that allow us to uh, protect the confidentiality of data while still making it um, accessible, very accessible for users. Um, one of our big innovations in 2021 was our, our create a custom data set, which does that disclosure control on the fly and allows people to um, interrogate census data securely. Um, so we are looking to develop the kind of techniques that we use to make census data available to use that for our linked administrative data as well. Great, thanks, Jen. Uh, let's take another question from in the room. Go on at the back. Thanks, uh, Matt Kerlogger, freelance data scientist. Um, it's really interesting what you said about the sort of the uh, population estimates by time of day, etc. Because obviously, we've just had the census, but that happened during COVID, and there was obviously in previous censuses we've used that for working age, sort of work, working area populations, and like sort of people during the working day. To what extent will this sort of development help sort of deal with the sort of issue we had because we were, so many people were working from home at the time of census? Yeah, and it has been a real challenge because not just people where they were working, people were living in different places. We, we think that some of the population estimates that we had for places like uh, central London, for example, were slightly slower than lower than you might have expected because we think some younger workers may have moved back to parental addresses or whatever during lockdown. So we've got lots of challenges moving from the census in 2021 to future population statistics and our hope is that through both using the stock measures that helps us to get to get over some of those challenges with estimating population change but also we're looking at um, making use of a whole range of data. So mobile phone data, for example, can we see patterns of movement through through using mobile phone signals or Twitter usage or all kinds of signals that may show us how people are moving around um, and track that movement, those movements kind of during the time of day and the day of the week or the season of the year. So, you know, there's um, coastal towns, for example, who see large fluctuations in their populations that don't get picked up through our, our core population estimates. So lots of work looking at all kinds of innovative data sources and tools. And if anyone can think of any, please, please let me know, because uh, it's a really important part of our work. Excellent. Uh, let's take another question. Anyone in the room? Otherwise, I'm going to have to ask, and nobody ever wants that. Um, Jen, you've talked a lot about some of the advantages that we might get from more innovative and you know, newer uh, data, uh, data collection methods. Is there anything that you'd be worried about losing if we stop the more traditional census? There's always, there's always going to be trade-offs here. Um, what we lose, um, when we design a census questionnaire, we can design the questions we want. We can design the response categories that, that we want. So we have much more control over what we collect. But we're also restricted in what we can collect. So we can only collect the sorts of things that um, will fit on the questionnaire or um, that are readily um, understandable by people. And we um, so things like income, for example, which can be quite complex for people to understand the their own household income um, and can be quite felt to be quite intrusive. We don't collect income on the census questionnaire, um, 
but we can get to it through administrative data. We collect information on general health, but there may be better health records that we could be using to understand the underpinning health of the, of the population. So we lose some control and we might lose some of the detail, but on the other hand, we, we gain in some other aspects. So lots of trade-offs. Um, and I guess in that chart that I showed, the bottom left-hand corner where we're talking about kind of sexual orientation or national identity, those are, it's much more difficult to see how you get that kind of information from administrative data where it's it's more kind of around self-identity and um, and kind of well-being, for example, which is about how you, how you are at any point in time. Much more difficult to see how you would get that from, a, from an administrative data source. Great, thank you. I think we've got time for one more. Um, yes. I was just wondering about whether you use social media in terms of as an extra data source. I, I, one of the reasons I ask that is the, the quality of ads I get from Facebook really don't reflect what sort of personal interests I am. And I was just wondering to what extent you use them and how you clean that data to make it in some way useful. So we don't use any um, social media data in our statistics at the moment. Um, we have thought about looking at kind of geolocations of tweets, that sort of thing, which so might show people moving around. Um, but our data science campus does does more of that work in terms of really exploratory frontline research. Um, so at the moment, we we don't. I'm always a little bit worried by what Facebook shows me with my ads, that um, maybe it knows me better than I do. Um, I'm going to squeeze in a quick final online question from Anonymous. Good evening to you, Anonymous. Do you see any specific use cases for this data and is anyone in particular asking for it? So, so yeah, if I, if I take a specific example then just to, um, to illustrate it, uh, if we take international migration, there is real interest in understanding the number of international students coming in and leaving the country and understanding net student migration. This is very complex to understand and we have to bring together a number of different data sources to try and understand the journeys in and out and the reasons people are making them. But there is clearly a very strong user need for good understanding of net international student migration. And so we will be producing those estimates in November for the first time. Excellent. Well, Jen, thank you very much for getting us off to a brilliant start this evening. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, do remember to visit the consultation website. I think it's open until the 26th of October. Uh, so we now move on to our second speaker of the evening, and that's Mikhail. Hello. Uh, so, uh, how do I operate it? Oh, that's already there. Thank you. So, I would like to talk about data in DDAT. Our perspective, maybe my perception of our perspective. So, it's very subjective. I will not show you a lot of data. In fact, I don't promise you any answers either. The problem is difficult, I think, and I would like to engage with you in a discussion. Why do we do that? is because we think the public services should be built in the open, and that includes data as well. We need to figure out how to do that. But who are we? So we are Department for Business and Trade, just across the road. Despite this very nice looking old building, we are one of the newer departments. Uh, quite literally now after MOG, we've got a month, maybe a month and a half, but even before when we were Department for International Trade, 
we were created after GDS. That means for us, GDS service standard was the default option. We were created just before DDAT framework. We adopted that as well. We embraced both, and we really have DDAT fairly high. Not every department does that, but we have directorate level, director support. So okay, so that's us. What is the government digital standard? Hopefully everybody knows by now, it's been 10 years, but this is a set of principles, a guidance, associated service assessment, how to create the services which are right for the people. It includes a lot of things, including data, mostly on uh, evaluation, but it tells us only how we should work. We've got DDAT framework, data, digital data and technology, which tells us what skills we should use to, to make that work. Now, there are things which are obviously in synergy between the two. Both put the user first. In both cases, we talk a lot about user-centric design, about doing things in an iterative, incremental way, the agile way. We, um, so they are, they are complementary to each other, but not everything is that easy. So there can be also some tension, and this is the main part where my experience as a head of profession for two data professions in DDAT comes in. So we've got service standard that focuses mostly on the teams. It tells us what is the team structure, what we should deliver, what is the service. We have also capability framework that focuses on the individual. On the individual, in a sense, how we progress our career, what skills do we need, who to recruit. And now, how many people should be in the team, right? We've got GDS telling us we need to work in teams. We should have cross-functional teams. We should have all the professions in the team. The number of professions is growing, and I didn't plan for that, but I've checked today again. Today it is 44, exactly as many as uh, Databytes sessions. 44 professions in DDAT framework. How can we build that team with 44 individuals? Who do we need, who do we don't? So, I've used half of my time already and I haven't spoken, spoken about the data other than number 44. So where is the data? In all of that, how do we account for data? Because incremental, agile ways of working, it's very easy to, to say, but the data is different, right? Everybody says that agile thing is brilliant, I'll just do my thing first and then you can do incremental stuff. We want data to be perfect, we want uh, data to be accurate, we want everything upfront. So, I don't have the answer for that, but this is what we are trying to do. For us, the data is very high at the list. We've got director, uh, directorate, we've got the all job families, except for the latest one, which is the data ethicist. We've got data led as the deputy director level, and we embrace all those statements. We include data as part of our service assessment. We got to the point where actually we were considering building on top of service assessment and build our own, including specific section on data. We didn't do that, but that's where we were uh, trying to get to.
So we are looking at the cross-functional teams with all professions we can get. This is naturally causing the, the problems. But first, let's talk about what works well for us. So working in those big teams, we do have user at the center of it. Whatever we do with data, we do that for the user. The capability framework helps us definitely with recruitment. We work along other professions. It's not quite with. So that's great. We learn from each other. We pick up te techniques other uh, colleagues have been doing for much longer than us in data. But there are things that do not work for us. As a head of profession, I see a lot of problems with in-team silos. We have a lot of experts in large teams, which means everybody is assigned a specific role based on what they do. We have a lot of data specialists, but they complain very often that they struggle to convey what they need, what the data need is, to others in different professions. Career development is also a problem because with that structure, we end up with mostly senior people on teams. How can you bring somebody junior to a role, a data role, which requires some support, I suppose, to understand that data, in a situation where you can afford only one professional per role? And things are not always products. We build things. The, the GDS service standard is great for building products. That's what we've been trying to do for the last few years. But not everything, except for data products now, is a product. So looking at the time, what we are exploring. We are looking and have been looking for, for a while what it means to be cross-functional. We can look at what the data professions are. Does everybody working with data need to be an expert? Very often here we present that expert view, but with growing data literacy, more and more people come in with data skills. Can we use them? Can we do data in an incremental and iterative way? I think we can, but how? And if so, how small can we make the iterations? So I have promised you no answers, and I cannot go to the next slide. So. Um, the current approach has worked for us pretty well. There are some challenges. There is that tension between how we should build professions, how we should build GDS services, and how to fit in that mix the data. But as we grow, as did that capability framework grows, a year ago it was 23 roles, now it's 44, it's more and more difficult to fit every profession in the picture. So the question is, what shall we do? How can we make data indeed that work for all of us so we don't choose between running things in those ways which you think are right, building the right service, and focusing specifically on data? So I promise no answers. I hopefully I didn't give you any to keep my word, but I would really love to talk. We are starting to look at our DDAT strategy again. We would like to have an input from others to see how you are solving those problems. And hopefully, in half a year, maybe a year, with our new strategy, I'll be able to come here and tell you what we've done and how the changes are working for us. Thank you.
reminder, if you're watching us online, please do put your questions into Slido, bit.ly slash slidodb44. Um, but I will start in the room again. Lots to think about from that. Who would like to ask the first question? I had a feeling it might be at the back there. Hi, uh, Matt Kolog, um, formerly a Cabinet Office uh, analyst, now freelancer. Um, I thought it was really interesting. You didn't have in either your what works well or what is challenging any conversation about technology uh, and like the tech available to people doing data work in government. Um, certainly as, a, as an analyst, um, one of the big complaints for economists, statisticians, social researchers, data scientists is, is the tech we have available in government just doesn't let us do the leading edge shiny things that our ministers and senior officials see people on the internet doing and go, why can't you do this? So I just thought it'd be interesting to get your perspective. Okay. Very interesting question. And uh, I intentionally try to avoid technology. Uh, you are absolutely right. We need the technology, but we need people to build that technology. And from my perspective as a head of profession, the people are more important because they will deliver that uh, technology. There is that tension, as I described in GDS ways of working. We want to build every service, even internal one, to, to the GDS service standard. But that means we are spending potentially more time than we could have. Uh, and we are struggling to find the right balance, I think. We would like to do much more than we are doing right now to build those shiny tools. But also, the team structures, the internal silos are causing delays. If you assign a specialist to a role in a team, what happens if that specialist is not there? Do you move on with everybody else sort of chipping in? Or do you say, no, no, we've got specialists, we'll wait. We'll wait a, a week. What if the specialist position is appointed to the team, allocated to the team, but we haven't recruited yet? Should we start the work or should we wait to do it right? Um, so I think Tools are important, but the way we work, the way we find ways to, to deliver those tools within DDAT and with GDS service standard in mind, both very important, is even more important, I think, to, to find the ways to make it work. Thanks. Uh, we've got another question there. Connor, Conservative Technology Forum. Um, having worked with civil servants on projects, etc., and Recently watching the ridicule that is made of the government when it tries to hire IT people on what they apparently call salaries. Um, I rather thought they were charitable donations. Um, that, see, that chief technology officer, I personally know people leaving university without any commercial experience at all getting more than that. And I'm wondering if the time has come that we just abandon the idea, except in certain very sensitive roles, where civil servants do data work at all. Because you simply cannot hire enough for the jobs we already have. There is obviously going to be an expansion, and that's just in data science. When AI turns up, I shudder to think at some of the people I've met in IT in the civil service being let loose with powerful computers. They might hurt themselves. Um, so has the time come for the civil servants to become managers and clients rather than deliverers of um, high-end IT services? Thank you for the question. Uh, I will try to avoid answering most of it as, it, as a civil servant I shouldn't engage in politics. However, uh, 
I'll point you to, towards uh, Gavin and his picture of outsourcing important government services. Now, there is something else uh, I can talk about uh, to hopefully answer part of your question. There is a number of skills that used to be specialist. Uh, it used to be enough to be able to read and write to get a job. Nowadays, everybody re reads and writes, mostly. Data, data skills are becoming similar. I see my daughters learning at age of six how to pre present data in presentations. Data soon will be a common skill. We need to deliver the right tools, but I think, I'm not saying it's easy, it will be difficult, but within the next decade, I think we will be doing, seeing data very differently as something very common, not something we should outsource, perhaps not something we should have specialists for. Thanks. Um, I've got a question there and a question there, so we'll go there first. Uh, I know our questions so far have not been hugely diverse, so please bear that in mind if you've got a question in mind. Oh, good evening. Uh, Dan Klein, Zulka. Um, Conscious that GDS over the last 10 years has avoided architecture, the big architecture of capital A, which is wonderful. Um, within that context, is there now a role for how the government designs, how data moves around government? And would that help in your quest here? Potentially, and one of my professions is data architecture. Uh, GDS stayed away from big design up front. Um, I think we need to stay away from it, but we need to find, find the ways to do architecture in small pieces. There, there are techniques, uh, there is concept of immutable architecture, there are people talking about uh, agile architecture. It is possible, uh, it's much more difficult, and it's at odds with enterprise architecture as, as I see it right now, which is something we adopt more and more, and therefore you've got that tension, another tension between big upfront strategic thinking and uh, implementation. But I think that doesn't have to be so. We just need to figure out how to do architecture that takes into account very large systems one step at a time. We talk a lot about standards. I think we should scale back and talk about protocols. How do we exchange data? Don't talk about how we centralize the data in a, the single seductive sort of platform but how we can have multiple platforms that do similar things, but exchange functionality, exchange the information. Thanks. I'm kind of horrified by this 44 types of special roles. Surely, I mean, that sounds like a sort of, uh, um, um, you know, the, the union structures of the 70s where demarcation, everybody did a different role. Surely there's a lot of technical overlap between these things and people do, can cover multiple areas of expertise. Um, you know, this is just a definition in that document. It would be so, and I wish it was so exactly. However, remuneration is by expertise in a specific role, which means you are incentivized to focus on what's in that role, nothing else, because what, what is outside of it doesn't give the individual anything. And that's, that's why I talk about the, the, the tension between the team objective, which comes from building the right service, and the motivation, part of motivation for an individual that comes with uh, payment, uh, salary, 
which comes from meeting specific role objectives. Very quick final question from Anonymous Online. Have you done any experiments in cross-skilling people in teams? I think if per a person who is not a user researcher-led researcher would result in failing a service standard assessment, is the attitude around data professions the same? It's very subjective. Again, in my professions, uh, I support many people with cross-career sort of paths, uh, managed moves, people who move from one uh, profession to another. I think it's very beneficial, but doing that, I see them sometimes struggle because they cannot directly use the skills they had for the purpose of the assessment. Interesting. Well, I think this is the, the start of a conversation. Uh, we'd love to have you back when you've done a bit more uh, thinking about all of this. But uh, for now, Mikhail, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Our office is just on the other side of the road. Come, join us. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. Uh, that brings us on to our third speaker of the evening, and that's Lex. Hello, hello. Can I get this to work? That's going to be the question. It will hopefully appear any moment now. I've got the fear. Was it me? <laughs> I touched something. Oh, no. There we are. Oh, and look, it works. Spoiler alert, though, on that slide. OK, so hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Lex Jones. I'm the CEO of Registry Trust. Uh, and I have a grand total of eight minutes, counting now. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I have a grand total of eight minutes to talk to you about the difference better data can make to all of us uh, directly and indirectly. So I think I probably better crack on with it. Uh, before I start, though, I should probably tell you a little bit about Registry Trust. Gallingly for the CEO to admit, unless you are either in the credit industry or have been directly affected by a CCJ, you probably haven't heard of us. So, Registry Trust, we are a non-profit organisation. We were set up in 1985 to run the public register of judgments, orders and fines. The original register itself is much, much older, dating back to the 19th century, uh, but we took over the running of the register from the Lord Chancellor's office in the 1980s. That register that you see today is a key part, a fundamental part of the data infrastructure, which supports hundreds of millions of lending decisions every single year. It is no exaggeration to say that the data set is a key part of a functioning economy. We also provide digital access to justice through our website, Trust Online. Facts and figures, size and scope, what are we talking about here? Uh, well, there are an average of five and a half million judgments on the register at any given point in time, so it's not a small thing. Over the last quarter, we saw England and Wales register 256,000 new judgments, taking the total amount owed to £549 million for England and Wales. What happens with this information? It gets used by credit firms, uh, by insurers, employers, landlords. If you've ever moved house, insured anything, or got a job, then actually registry trust data was used somewhere within that decision chain. There simply isn't a decision taken on due diligence that doesn't use registry trust data somewhere. We also work to inform public discourse on economic matters. We seek to empower consumers through our campaigns for improved data. We support the financially vulnerable individuals by lobbying for CCJ changes that will make the entire process easier to navigate. We try to educate the public on things like credit scores and maintaining good financial health. And we do this, all of this, under the ethos of public data for the public good. 
going to take a few minutes as well to talk to you about times when incorrect and incomplete data has had unfortunate repercussions. So you talk about 2016 and the US presidential elections. Uh, nobody needs to panic. This isn't going to be any kind of party political broadcast. Uh, but if you pass your mind back, pollsters, analysts, commentators were all confidently predicting a landslide Hillary Clinton victory. And we all know what happened next. That didn't happen. The spread of da bad data that was used in the predictions could have been offset by using different statistical models, etc. But because all of those methods they could have used were costly or time intensive, they didn't use them. Instead, they used online surveys, publicly available online census data, etc. The result was incomplete data leading to an incorrect prediction. Go back a little bit further in time, 2001, Enron. I don't know if anyone remembers that. Big, big company. Uh, and effectively, we had evidence from internal whistleblowers around the shredding of documents from external auditors and a clear statements that the data that was being provided to shareholders was largely fictionalized or incomplete. The result, of course, incomplete and incorrect data leading to the downfall of the company. We also had the one I can't pronounce, tetraethylene, I think, in gasoline. Um, this is a compound that was added to gasoline in the 1920s, effectively to control knocking noises in engines. The outcome, though, well, it contributed to over 5,000 fatalities in the US alone. This was in part because of intentionally inconclusive tests led by the gas industry. In fact, for decades afterwards, the lead paint and lead gas industries blamed each other for lead poisoning. Apparently, some scientists were even suggesting that the human body naturally contains lead, so high levels shouldn't, in fact, be a health concern. The result, though, incomplete and incorrect data led to the deaths of thousands. I think I'm probably preaching converted in the room when I say better, complete data leads to better, more accurate decisions. So what's this got to do with registry trust, though, and county court judgments? Well, I want to raise awareness of one of our key campaigns with you, and that's a campaign for claimant data. Now, we are campaigning to complete the data set for England and Wales judgments by including the claimant data for county court judgments, the only part of the data set that is currently not published. What is claimant data? It's just the name of the claimant, name of the firm who took the judgment out against you. And at present, the jurisdiction of England and Wales is the only UK jurisdiction not to provide that information. Why not? Just an omission in the regulations of judgments, orders, and fines 2005. And yes, that does just trip off the tongue. That omission simply means that the judgment uh, regulations failed to stipulate that claimant data needed to be included. Key points there, why do we need to do this? Why does it matter? Is it going to save lives, predict election outcomes, keep businesses afloat? Maybe. There are a wide variety of benefits to this proposed change that would better inform decisions across the economic and political landscape. Claimant data would be a useful tool to allow regulators to monitor how regulated firms treat vulnerable consumers, arguably vital given the ongoing impact of the cost of living crisis and rising inflation. Claimant data would also be an incredibly useful indicator of effective risk management on the part of lenders. We would be able to look at the effectiveness of controls lenders have in place to, to prevent irresponsible lending. We'd be able to see which firms were out of step with peers and start to have conversations with them accordingly. All regulators, including those quite often forgotten, so regulators for telecoms and utility firms, would be able to analyze the effectiveness of policies designed to support com consumers in financial difficulty. Again, pressing all the more pressing these days. Claimant data could help academics, policymakers, economists everywhere obtain better insight into the source of problem debt within the UK economy. Is it parking fines, credit card debt, water bills? We don't know. We could know, but we don't know because we don't have 
accessible claimant data. Individuals would benefit too. Oh, goodness, look at the time. Individuals would benefit too. 76% of users of our website come onto that website looking for claimant data. Typically, people find out they have a, a county court judgment against them at a real stress point in their life. They've applied for a job, normally in a regulated industry. They've applied for lending of some description, a mortgage, you know, a credit card, anything like that. Suddenly, they can't get it. They can get 99% of the information they require on a county court judgment from us, except the name of the organization or individual they need to pay back, which is not only extraordinary, uh, but absolutely outrageous in this day and age. If they could get that information from us, they wouldn't need to phone the courts. And speaking of the courts, if we could provide claimant data instead of people having to phone the courts, it would reduce strain and pressure on an already overburdened court service. We estimate that the courts see in, uh, in the region of 200 queries a week solely on claimant data. Imagine what the court service would be able to do about their backlog if they were able to free up that level of resource. Over and above the cost and efficiency benefits, the courts there are, of course, data-related arguments, which seem very much in line with the program to harness the power of technology and data far more effectively than is the case now. So what needs to happen? It's a minor thing. We are fully equipped to publish claimant data because we already have the public register for England and Wales. Amending the system would be a minimal cost to the courts and would effectively save them money in the long term. All that's required is a minor tweak in the law. It's a change to a statutory instrument. It is not new primary legislation. That tiny, tiny change, though, will be of enormous informational value to economists, policymakers, academics, think tanks, and, of course, the huge number of individuals directly affected by county court judgments. Providing this data would allow for better, more informed decision-making in myriad ways which affect all of us. I am absolutely running out of time. So very quickly, we are also campaigning for better data in two other areas, get satisfaction and partial settlements. I definitely don't have time today to do them justice, so one for another time. Oh, I'm out of time. I hope I've reminded you of the many ways in which missing or incomplete data has negative consequences. I hope I've convinced you of the benefits of our campaign for claimant data and completing that county court judgment data set. And I really hope I've whetted your curiosity about some of the other campaigns we're running as well. We are definitely going to need support to make sure that our proposed change becomes a reality. But we know if it does, better decisions will become possible as a result. I'm so sorry I ran over. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lex. Uh, a reminder, if you're watching us online, please use Slido to put your questions to Lex. And it's bit.ly slash Slido DB44, capital S, capital DB, uh, if you're not already on the site. Uh, let's uh, stay in the room for the first questions. I'll come to you first. I'll come to you next. Oh, hi. Uh, my name is Vikram Shah. Um, to preserve the sanctity of your data, have you started using blockchain facilities or uh, NFT? No, not at the moment. So the, the data comes via a secure data feed from the court service directly through to Registry Trust every single day. Because the the data that you are either storing or providing, uh, if, it, if it gets destroyed or if it gets tampered by, then blockchain kind of technology helps you uh, to, to keep the sanctity. And I was just wondering if uh, NFT, which is largely used mostly in uh, <clears throat> digital art world, but for database, NFT is proving to be far more resilient. So I was wondering if you guys use uh, blockchain as a platform or not. I'm smiling because I'm thinking if my systems manager is watching this, he is laughing his head off and saying, you should have brought me along. You should have brought me along. Um, I don't definitively know. I, I couldn't give you chapter and verse on that. I can tell you we do back up the data 
um, every single day, uh, and the data is stored securely. I, I couldn't give you chapter and verse there on, on the different methods we use. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Dominic, kind of conservative technology form again. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I have a very specific question, which is, because um, I, forgive me, I hadn't heard of your organization before, but I'm wondering about the uniqueness of names here. For the first 40 years of my life, I thought I was the only person with my name in the world. Then Google arrived, and there were three pages of pedophiles, all with the same name, which is a bit saddening. Um, but what do we do about that problem? If, if, if there are other people with the same name, and they have counter-court judgments, et cetera. How, how is that handled? You know, if, if this is being made part of a public record that can severely impact your life, how do you disambiguate those names? How is it done? Uh, dates of birth and addresses are also linked with that. Um, That's how the contact system went terribly, terribly wrong, assuming that names and addresses were primary keys. Yeah, so that information is, is uploaded by the claimant in the case. Uh, and it's, it's gone through the court service, so we don't necessarily second-guess what the court service tell us, but we do do a level of due diligence on the data to make sure that we haven't got a judgment landed against, say, a Mr. Mickey Mouse, for example, just throwing that out there. Um, so we do try and double-check that. In terms of the data matching, a lot of that will then happen at credit reference agency end, uh, and they are understandably very, very cautious about how they match that data. Credit reference agencies generally will campaign very strongly for better ways, more data to be added to that data set to enable better matching. So for individuals, that is, they want dates of birth to be made mandatory. Actually, the Ministry of Justice have, have declined to do that because they think it's a, it's a barrier to justice for um, individuals using the courts, which you can see. Uh, but for firms, they look at, uh, could we add things like company numbers or VAT registration numbers, etc., cetera, uh, to try and make sure that when the data does come through, it is actually usable. Uh, before I come to there and then there, I've got an, an online question from Anonymous. Again, possibly a different one. Who knows? Um, they say, sorry if this is a silly question, but why can't the omission be fixed? Oh, it's not a silly question. And hello, Anonymous. What a brilliant question. Um, why can't it be fixed? I, I, this might be a silly answer. Um, it absolutely can be fixed. It should be fixed. The fact that it's not yet fixed is outrageous. Um, we, we simply haven't managed to get sufficient public interest, which is in part why I'm here talking to all of you lovely people, uh, trying to bang the drum about why this is so important. Great, thank you. Um, yes. Hi there. Uh, Biden, Managing Director of Pivotal. Um, following on from that question, actually, it sounds like a fantastic idea. What's the next steps for getting it, for getting the change made? Uh, so at the moment, we have literally just had the outcome of a Westminster Hall debate um, with a question posed by uh, a lady called Janet Davey, who's the uh, Labour MP for Lewisham. Um, and as a result of that, we've had commitment from the Ministry of Justice to go away and have a look at the possibility um, of, of getting that change made. I am conscious, however... Uh, and, and again, possibly speaking to people who know far more about this than I do. But the ability to get things done in government, I think, means that pressure needs to be kept up and maintained. I would not want to go away and think, well, we've had a Westminster Hall debate and a commitment to think about it, so everything will now uh, carry on exactly as I see fit. And forgive me if that sounded pejorative. It wasn't meant to. <laughs> uh, we've got the question over there, and we'll come to you next. I'm Harlan Connor, student at University of Liverpool. Um, is there not a worry with making this data more accessible and open that it would disincentivise and scare off maybe more vulnerable people from getting engaged with the legal system if they know that their name will be a matter of public record, especially available to credit agencies, for instance? Um, 
I, I would say not, in that uh, their, their name is already part of the public record the minute they go through the, the, the court process. Um, so actually what this does, or what this change would do, uh, is, is mean that if they want to make uh, repayments to, um, to, to the firm or individual who took the judgment out against them, it's actually very easy for them to find that detail. Um, it also means that lenders, underwriters, etc., would be able to make uh, value judgments on the, uh, the claimant in the case. So if I were lending, and I'm not, but if I were lending, I might be rather more interested in lending to someone who, say, had a parking fine from five years ago than I would be someone who had a credit card debt from one year ago, if that makes sense. So actually, the idea behind this is, is very much to uh, open it up and to improve the lot, to increase financial inclusion rather than go the other way. Is there some reason why it's set up the, like this way, where this is secret? Was it vested interests of some sort that wanted to keep their names off the record? Well, do you know, in, in the dark still watches of the night, I do sometimes ponder that, because no one has been able to give me a decent answer. Now, Registry Trust has been in existence since 1985, uh, and talking about you know, this, this, uh, this deficit in data since then. Oh, good, I'm just checking time again. Um, They've been talking about this deficit in data since then. I've only been there since 2017. But in my experience, no one has yet been able to come up with a decent reason why that data is omitted. So sorry, that's a non-answer, isn't it, really? But not that I'm aware of. Uh, we've got time for one more question, I think. We've got one down here. Hi, that was so fascinating. I also hadn't heard of your organisation. Um, I know this wasn't what you were here to talk about, but I'm really interested. So obviously you must get so many requests for data from so many different organisations. On a technical level, how does your organisation service all of them? Gosh, I need my systems manager again. Don't I? No, no, it's fine. It's fine, it's fine. Um, so a lot of it is done via, via contract. Um, effectively, so uh, people can either set up a, a bulk contract with us, so they will uh, approach us and ask us for data um, to be shared in that way, or they might do uh, what we call them special requests internally, um, but that will be they're looking for a specific subset of data. Um, so, for example, if you have a uh, geographic interest, you want to know about judgments in the Northwest, for example, um, you can approach us and ask for specific data um, as a result of that. I'm squeezing a very quick final question. Anyone want to go for it? Otherwise, a quick one from me. Um, as you know, uh, we've had a couple of justice specials uh, recently. What would you like to see to help sort of data across the entire justice system work more smoothly? Uh, I think my biggest issue and my biggest frustration is um, the number of silos that still continue to exist within the, the justice data system. So very much, you know, left hand, right hand. I, I would say that the, the justice brief is enormous because you've got civil justice and you've got criminal justice as well. We're very much on, on the civil side of things. Um, but I, I think, you know, breaking down those silos, removing those barriers for, for, for proper and effective data sharing. Uh, I think at the moment there's a lot of fear driving decisions. We don't know how that data is going to get used or we are worried that it might get used in a negative way. Actually, actually, let's start to think about the positive ways and the really positive quantifiable difference um, that we could make if we started to share that data and use it properly. Brilliant. A great note on which to end. Lex, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that brings us to our final speaker of the evening, his second Data Bytes perform uh, performance, uh, appearance. Um, Stan was last with us back in Data Bytes 8 in February 2020, and we all know what happened next. Mm. So please welcome Stan. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, uh, 
I was the final one, wasn't I, before that great event. So, yeah, thanks for inviting me back. Um, I've been set up very well for my uh, talk. I'm going to discuss a project I've been working on uh, since uh, DB8 um, around sharing data, breaking those silos, linking information together for the public good to, uh, to protect people. Um, and, um, and here we go. So, oh, hang on, gone the wrong way. Right. <clears throat> so, first of all, uh, when we talk about the common data platform that we've created, but a few kind of disclaimers. Um, years of hard work still being developed. It's been very difficult, but I'm really impressed uh, that we've got to where we've got to. The technology is marvelous, and we've been discussing technology this evening. Uh, we've created something, a project called Thames Valley Together, working in the Thames Valley area, uh, and I'm going to run through what that platform looks like and what it does, and then happy to answer some questions. Um, I don't know very long, so it's going to be a very high-level kind of touch. Um, so the first thing that we did when we were looking at sharing data, breaking those silos, thinking about how we, uh, how we use kind of modern technology to share data was a few kind of what-nots. What did we not want to do? Um, one of the things that we didn't want to do was, was share, just share data at an aggregate level. We've heard already from ONS and there's plenty others out there where we can access aggregate level data and it tells you a lot, tells you a lot of interesting things, but it doesn't tell you who you need to be working with. Uh, and we learned this lesson very on, early on from health partners who'd kind of made this error within some of the work they did around things like diabetes research. So they could tell at an aggregate level what communities, what neighborhoods perhaps were more at risk, but they couldn't really say who the people were and therefore couldn't advise the people locally that they needed to do something around their lifestyle perhaps to prevent diabetes from settling in. So we learned very early on that aggregate level was great, but we needed to be able to get below that. Actually, we deal with operational data, so that wasn't such a big deal for us, but we needed to get into a place where we could securely share operational data. We didn't want to either get involved in too much manual analysis at kind of lower levels. So for the analysts in the room, I apologize, but we were looking to use the skills of analysis, the skills of research, but to automate that work um, and to make uh, our kind of visualizations, our dashboards, our problem profiles available uh, using as live data as we could, but uh, to make to, to automate them. So we didn't have to start from the beginning if we were asked another question. So uh, you know, analysts will be very aware of this. You produce some brilliant anal analysis and somebody says, yeah, but what about? And then you're like, well, we can answer that question, but we're going to have to go back and start again and build this up. But to be able to build something that was automated, that was kind of quite nimble, that you could use uh, the data that sat behind it in uh, fairly intuitive ways to be able to answer uh, questions uh, that were posed to you without starting again. And what we didn't want to do either was, and this goes to the question that was asked earlier around security, was we didn't want to be emailing data around, which is pretty much the standard way of sharing information, that you send an email, you have three minutes of panic whilst you're trying to dial up the person on the other end to say, did you receive the email or did I send it somewhere I shouldn't have sent it, um, to make sure that the email's landed and the data's there. Now, 
emailing data around has those risks, but you are also handing somebody the data. We didn't want to hand the data over. We wanted to retain the data in a place where it was secure and share the insight without actually handing the data over. So we had some ground rules, and those are just a few of them, but we kind of knew where we wanted to start, um, if, even if we didn't know where we wanted to end up. So we built a platform, uh, a cloud-based uh, platform with lots of governance around it, a data ethics board that's independently chaired, uh, that's giving us advice on how we should and should not use data. Um, created products, and we've talked about data products before, products that are at a strategic level, but also at an individual level, uh, so that individual key workers could work with people who were affected uh, by the kind of risk factors that we were looking to identify within the data that we could help uh, people with. Um, and we have also built a, a community powered by that collaboration. Here's an, an, an indication of some of the risk factors that we've been looking at. Uh, this is from the Serious Violence Strategy 2018 from the Home Office. The risk factors for serious violence, but they're pretty much the risk factors for all sorts of things in in, in, uh, in life. Um, the issues that we have is, you know, how do you tell a police officer to do something about impulsivity? Uh, you can, but, and generally they're out of the room before you finish the question. Um, that's a joke. Um, but uh, we had to identify the data that would indicate the likelihood of impulsivity within uh, a community or an individual. So we're looking for data to identify these risk factors. In order to do that, we've created, and this is a very simplified version of what we've created in terms of the platform. Uh, data comes in from partners uh, into a secure storage area. It's modeled in kind of two views, an aggregate view and a kind of person level view. Uh, uh, developers get access to it um, depending on their kind of role. So our role-based access system, very securely monitored and we develop together products that give insight uh, to allow us to allocate resources and give attention to the issues that uh, come up through the, the analysis. Uh, and a couple of the products that we've created, uh, so something that shows where people live who get involved in violence. Generally speaking, when you're plotting violence, you're plotting where violence occurs, not necessarily where the people live that sit behind it, so you don't know what services are needed to prevent those violence, uh, that violence erupting because you're placing it into the wrong area. So we are able to be able to identify almost real-time, kind of standardized view with repeatable data that's shareable uh, to provide insight into a range of partners. Um, we're also able to provide uh, at an individual level through our multi-agency safeguarding hubs information from a range of partners that would identify commonalities in risk uh, that is secure, adaptable, provides uh, action rather than just administration, and allows space for others to develop uh, that action and not spend their time thinking about sharing data. They can actually look at problem solving and not spend all of their time on the admin tasks. So. Um, you know, some great products that we're able to push out and we are pushing out, and lots of unexpected benefits as well. Uh, partners who are providing data are able to go back and uh, improve their own data, um, because we know that unless you're getting quality data, you're not 
able to provide good linking, and we've already discussed why good linking is really important. Um, uh, and data quality is improving across the partnership. Uh, really good tools for identifying risk being developed as we're able to identify where the data is coming from and the missing data. Uh, we see lots of areas where we don't have really good data on, for example, girls. Really good, we've got lots of data on boys, not so much on girls. Able to start identifying where we've got good data and then standardise the tooling so that we're better able to share uh, data to give us at the bottom you can see uh, a kind of targeted picture uh, and we're able to commission better services. So that's me. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. <laughs> Again, if you're online, slido bit.ly slash slidodb44. Excellent. Uh, let's start in the room. Who'd like to ask the first question? I'll go there and then there. Hello. Thanks very much, Stan. Really interesting. Uh, what technology platform did you go with? Microsoft Azure. It's um, part of the national policing stack, so we didn't, with a lot of the stuff we've done, we've gone with kind of national preferred options in order to standardize as much as we could. Other providers are available. Um, how, how did that work with some of your other partners who perhaps weren't um, within the police stack, as it were? Um, well, they, they were very grateful that we were providing them free of charge with a, a system that they could uh, use to share data um, because it's, uh, it's something that's kind of already paid for and we're surfing on the back of it. Great. We've got a question there and then we'll come down. Yes, that was very interesting. Um, the, the diagram you showed of, of how systems are developed, that was a sort of flow-through model. I was wondering how, as you develop future versions of the system, it works for identifying data sets that you want to bring in, feedback from either users or the developers, rather than through a flow-through method. Yeah, um, so this is part of that community that we've developed. So we're looking to, um, to innovate, and we've already kind of talked about blockchain tonight. Um, looking to innovate in ways that we might want to use data, but also innovate in the data we might want to capture to solve problems. So one of those things that we did was around identifying when a parent goes into prison. So you saw on the list of risk factors, adverse childhood experiences, key one there, parental incarceration. What's the national framework to identify when a parent goes into prison? There isn't one. So we were able to innovate with some data to be able to link those two things together and say, we know when a person goes into prison or moves within the secure state. We know through the linked data whether there is a child left behind and we can provide and offer up community support to that. So looking to always innovate within that community of practice that we've developed. Excellent. We've got a question down here at the front. From the head of profession from data architecture. Go ahead. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, you said other providers are available. What do you do to keep them available because you choose the, what, what's nationally the flavor of a year, I suppose, right now. But with great technology like that, once you build it, people want to use it. And we shouldn't be tied to a single contract. Uh, do you do anything about that? Yeah, we, uh, we run, uh, regularly run data kind of discovery days where we talk about the approach that we've had. We have that list of whatnots, you know, came out from those days. Very kind of open science approach to the way that we develop things and always looking for, you know, partners to come forward and, 
and offer suggestions about how they might want to present or innovate within this space. We've created a blueprint, um, so we have a, a governance structure around data collaboration, uh, but very open to how people might want to use that um, in order to provide a resource to do it. Um, and then the same in the, you know, engaging very closely with the tech sector and how you make those data available. So, you know, is it an app? You know, is it a dashboard? How might you want to make those data available for people to consume? And again, looking for the tech sector to come back to us and offer up ideas for innovation in that space as well. And we, we have lots of those conversations. Great. Uh, we've got a question there, and then I'll come there next. It's not a question, it's a remark. Um, you said that you can, in a region, see uh, people that will have diabetes. You should have said type 2 diabetes, because type 1 diabetes is an immunological system fault and nothing to do with the Okay, thank you. Any other? Thank problems. you for clarifying. Thank you. Uh, we've got a question in the back there. Hi, Stan. It's uh, James from the Evidence Quarter. Uh, nice to meet you. Um, how do you nationalise this? Because there's lots of kind of different pockets of work going on. You've got Insight Bristol, you've got Somerset Transform, you've got Dorset Dice, you've got TVT, and I'm sure there's a lot more, but how does this all end up getting joined up and coming together so there's this kind of secure utilisation of data to help people transform lives, improve lives, make things better? How do you do that? Yeah, good question. Um, by being better than everyone else. Um, yeah, we have to provide something that is accessible, that's doable, that people can build towards, that, that you know, captures those whatnots in a really uh, you know, powerful way. Uh, and we have to build um, good quality products uh, and make sure that they're made available to keep people interested so they can see what they can do. Um, we've provided... Uh, some good examples for policing around you know, hotspots uh, activity, randomised control trials within hotspots. We've made that available through the police digital service for download. Uh, the uh, parental incarceration piece, again, made that available for, uh, for um, areas to be able to you know, capture that information and, and, and follow through on that. So it's by making these products available, making the approach available, making the tech available, uh, making the governance available because it, you know, the tech's great but it's our library, isn't it? It's the governance that brings it to light. Uh, and then by engaging with people like this uh, and more widely around making sure that uh, folks understand that we've put in quite a lot of work around the tech and the governance, etc. Uh, and they don't need to do that. They can uh, take advantage of, of the kind of six years of hard work that's gone into this uh, rather than trying to reinvent it. So yeah, by being collaborative, by um, supporting others as much as we can to get on that data maturity journey uh, and provide a tech solution that, uh, that is accessible and reproducible. Great, thank you. I suspect we have time for one more question. <clears throat> so this, this question about lots of different people building similar systems seems very parallel to what we're doing in health. Um, the NHS is about to switch to secure data environments 
in a federated way across the country around ICSs. So the idea, you know, people's data um, is already identified, it's only processed in that sort of way for research analysis, but that you'll be able to link things up as we did during COVID to do the kind of analysis that feeds into policy. So are you talking about that kind of federated common standards types approaches? Yes, but at an individual level, um, because you know, for the reasons I kind of mentioned, it, it's uh, it's helpful to know at a kind of anonymized, perhaps strategic level, what's what the pictures and flows are, but it doesn't help you work with the people. Now in health, you may say, well, actually the GP gets that information, uh, but then nobody else does because health don't share that kind of data. So. Uh, it's great that you've got that siloed information available in health, but we're trying to break it out so that we can work across, you know, social um, uh, 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 space uh, enable, to enable a greater focus on prevention so people don't get into those health problems in the first place by taking that very much public health approach to prevention. Um, so we're not dealing with sickness, we're actually dealing with that prevention space. So trying to work as closely with ICS, ICBs as we can, try to work as closely with those data sets as we're able, but to be able to operationalize it much more effectively across a broader partnership. So really keen to work within that space, but it's a slightly different product that needs to come out. But yeah, everyone's trying to do similar things, you're right. Uh, and we've got a good solution, I think, to support the work that's going on elsewhere. Excellent. Well, Stan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. A few quick parish notices before I release those of you in the room to the reception afterwards, which is downstairs and in the garden today. Very exciting. It's a good noise. You lot can come again. Um, so in terms of the parish notices, uh, we will aim to get this video on the IFG website within 24 hours. You can already watch it back live on Slido. I'm sure you know the address by now. And YouTube. Um, the IFG's next public event is tomorrow lunchtime. Um, I think that's online. It's about civil service impartiality and what the UK can learn from abroad. Uh, we've also got Angela Rayner speaking this week and events on levelling up and promoting growth. Uh, so do check out the IFG website for details of those. Um, we may have a report coming out this week that's uh, of interest to those of you that care about data around the new office uh, for local government. You can, of course, go to the ONS website and fill in the consultation. Uh, you've got until October to do that. Data Bytes will be taking a summer break. We'll be back on Wednesday, the 13th of September. We would love you to sponsor a future one. Um, if you work for a company that might be interested in doing that, please do speak to us afterwards. And if you're in the public sector and would like to be up here presenting, then do come and speak to me as well. That gives only two things uh, that remain, and that's to say two very big thank yous. First of all, to you, our wonderful audience, some excellent questions tonight, so thank you very much for that. And please do join me in a huge round of applause for our fantastic speakers this evening. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.